Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, Hearts and Hands, by O. Henry. At Denver, there was an influx of passengers into the coaches on the eastbound B&M Express. In one coach there sat a pretty young woman, dressed in elegant taste and surrounded by all the luxurious comforts of an experienced traveler. Among the newcomers were two young men, one of handsome presence with a bold, frank countenance and manner, the other a ruffled, glum-faced person, heavily built and roughly dressed. The two were handcuffed together. As they passed down the side of the coach, the only vacant seat offered was a reversed one facing the attractive young woman. Here the linked couple seated themselves. The young woman's glance fell upon them with a distant, swift disinterest. Then, with a lovely smile brightening her countenance and a tender pink tinging her rounded cheeks, she held out a little grey-gloved hand. When she spoke, her voice, full, sweet, and deliberate, proclaimed that its owner was accustomed to speak and be heard. Well, Mr. Easton, if you will make me speak first, I suppose I must. Don't you ever recognize old friends when you meet them in the West? The younger man roused himself sharply at the sound of her voice, seemed to struggle with a slight embarrassment which he threw off instantly, and then clasped her fingers with his left hand. It's Miss Fairchild, he said with a smile. I'll ask you to excuse the other hand that's otherwise engaged just at present. He slightly raised his right hand, bound at the wrist by the shining bracelet, to the left one of his companion. The glad look in the girl's eyes slowly changed to a bewildered horror. The glow faded from her cheeks, her lips parted in a vague, relaxing distress. Easton, with a little laugh, as if amused, was about to speak again when the other forestalled him. The glum-faced man had been watching the girl's countenance with veiled glances from his keen, shrewd eyes. You'll excuse me for speaking, miss, but... I see you're acquainted with the marshal here. If you'll ask him to speak a word for me when we get to the pen, he'll do it, and it'll make things easier for me there. He's taking me to Leavenworth Prison. Seven years for counterfeiting. Oh, said the girl with a deep breath and returning color. So that is what you're doing out here. A marshal. My dear Miss Fairchild, said Easton calmly, I had to do something. Money has a way of taking wings onto itself, and, you know, it takes money to keep up with our crowd in Washington. I saw this opening in the West, and, well, a marshalship isn't quite as high a position as that of ambassador, but the ambassador, said the girl warmly, doesn't call anymore. He needn't ever have done so. You ought to know that. And so now you are one of those dashing western heroes, and you ride and shoot and go into all kinds of dangers. That's different from the Washington life. 
You've been missed from the old crowd. The girl's eyes fascinated went back, widening a little to rest upon the glittering handcuffs. Don't you worry about them, miss, said the other man. All marshals handcuffed themselves to their prisoners to keep them from getting away. Mr. Easton knows his business. Will we see you again soon in Washington? asked the girl. Not soon, I think, said Easton. My butterfly days are over, I fear. I love the West, said the girl irrelevantly. Her eyes were shining softly. She looked away out the car window. She began to speak truly and simply without the gloss of style and manner. Mama and I spent the summer in Denver. She went home a week ago because Father was slightly ill. I could live and be happy in the West. I think the air here agrees with me. Money isn't everything, but people always misunderstand things and remain stupid. Say, Mr. Marshall, growled the glum-faced man, this isn't quite fair. I'm needing a drink and haven't had a smoke all day. Haven't you talked long enough? Take me in the smoker now, won't you? I'm half dead for a pipe. The bound travelers rose to their feet, Easton with the same slow smile on his face. I can't deny a petition for tobacco, he said, lightly. It's the one friend of the unfortunate. Goodbye, Miss Fairchild. Duty calls, you know. He held out his hand for a farewell. It's too bad you are not going east, she said, reclothing herself with manner and style. But you must go on to Leavenworth, I suppose. Yes, said Easton. I must go on to Leavenworth. The two men sidled down the aisle into the smoker. The two passengers in a seat nearby had heard most of the conversation. Said one of them, That marshal's a good sort of chap. Some of these western fellows are all right. Pretty young to hold an office like that, isn't he? Asked the other. Young? exclaimed the first speaker. Why didn't you catch on? Say... Did you ever know an officer to handcuff a prisoner to his right hand? If you know this one, tell us about it. Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. And now for another short story. Our next story, The Brave Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. There were once five and twenty tin soldiers who were all brothers, for they had been made out of the same old tin spoon. They shouldered arms and looked straight before them and wore a splendid uniform, red and blue. The first thing in the world they ever heard were the words, Tin Soldiers, uttered by a little boy who clapped his hands with delight when the lid of the box in which they lay was taken off. They were given him for a birthday present, and he stood at the table to set them up. The soldiers were all exactly alike, excepting one who had only one leg. He had been left to the last, and there was not enough of the melted tin to finish him, so they made him to stand firmly on one leg and this caused him to be very remarkable. The table on which the tin soldier stood was covered with other playthings, but the most attractive to the eye was a pretty little paper castle 
Through the small windows, the rooms could be seen. In front of the castle, a number of little trees surrounded a piece of looking glass, which was intended to represent a transparent lake. Swans, made of wax, swam on the lake and were reflected in it. All of this was very pretty. But the prettiest of all was a tiny little lady, who stood at the open door of the castle. She, also, was made of paper, and she wore a dress of clear muslin, with a narrow blue ribbon over her shoulders, just like a scarf. In front of these was fixed a glittering tinsel rose, as large as her whole face. The little lady was a dancer, and she stretched out both her arms and raised one of her legs so high that the tin soldier could not see it at all, and he thought that she, like himself, had only one leg. That is the wife for me, he thought, but she is too grand and lives in a castle, while I only have a box to live in, five and twenty of us altogether. That is no place for her. Still, I must try and make her acquaintance. Then he laid himself at full length on the table behind a stuffed box that stood upon it, so that he could peep at the delicate little lady, who continued to stand on one leg without losing her balance. When evening came, the other tin soldiers were all placed in the box, and the people of the house went to bed. Then the playthings began to have their own games together, to pay visits, to have sham fights, and to give balls. The tin soldiers rattled in their box. They wanted to get out and join the amusements, but they could not open the lid. The nutcrackers played at leapfrog, and the pencil jumped about the table. There was such a noise that the canary woke up and began to talk, and in poetry, too. Only the tin soldier and the dancer remained in their places, She stood on tiptoe with her legs stretched out as firmly as he did on his one leg. He never took his eyes from her for even a moment. The clock struck twelve and, with a bounce, up sprang the lid of the snuff box. But instead of snuff, there jumped a little black goblin, for the snuff box was a toy puzzle. Tin soldier, said the goblin, Don't wish for what does not belong to you. But the tin soldier pretended not to hear. Very well. Wait till tomorrow then, said the goblin. When the children came in the next morning, they placed the tin soldier in the window. Now whether it was the goblin who did it, or the draught, is not known. But the window flew open, and out fell the tin soldier heels overhead from the third story into the street beneath. It was a terrible fall, for he came head downwards. His helmet and his bayonet stuck in between the flagstones, and his one leg up in the air. The servant maid and the little boy went downstairs directly to look for him, but he was nowhere to be seen, although once they nearly trod upon him. If he had called out, Here I am! It would have been all right, but he was too proud to cry out for help while he wore a uniform. Presently it began to rain, 
and the drops fell faster and faster till there was a heavy shower. When it was over, two boys happened to pass by, and one of them said, Look, there is a tin soldier. He ought to have a boat to sail in. So they made a boat out of a newspaper and placed a tin soldier in it and sent him sailing down the gutter while the two boys ran by the side of it and clapped their hands. Good gracious, what large waves arose in that gutter! And how fast the stream rolled on, for the rain had been very heavy. The paper boat rocked up and down and turned itself round sometimes so quickly that the tin soldier trembled. Yet he remained firm. His countenance did not change. He looked straight before him and shouldered his musket. Suddenly, the boat shot under a bridge, which formed a part of a drain, and then it was as dark as the tin soldier's box. Where am I going now, thought he. This is the black goblin's fault, I am sure. Ah, well, if the little lady were only here with me in the boat, I would not care for any darkness. Suddenly, there appeared a great water rat who lived in the drain. Have you a passport? asked the rat. Give it to me at once. But the tin soldier remained silent and held his musket tighter than ever. The boat sailed on and the rat followed it. How he did gnash his teeth and cry out to the bits of wood and straw, Stop him! Stop him! He has not paid toll and has not shown his pass. But the stream rushed on stronger and stronger. The tin soldier could already see daylight shining where the arch ended. Then he heard a roaring sound, quite terrible enough to frighten the bravest. At the end of the tunnel, the drain fell into a large canal over a steep place, which made it so dangerous for him as a waterfall would be to us. He was too close to it to stop. So the boat rushed on, and the poor tin soldier could only hold himself as stiffly as possible, without moving an eyelid, to show that he was not afraid. The boat whirled round three or four times, and then filled with water to the very edge. Nothing could save it from sinking. He now stood up to his neck in water, while deeper and deeper sank the boat, and the paper became soft and loose with the wet, till at last the water closed over the soldier's head. He thought of the elegant little dancer he should never see again, and the words of the song sounded in his ears. Farewell, warrior, ever drifting onward to thy grave. Then the paper boat fell to pieces, and the soldier sank into the water and immediately afterwards was swallowed up by a great fish. Oh, how dark it was inside the fish! A great deal darker than in the tunnel, and narrower, too. But the tin soldier continued firm and lay at full length shouldering his musket. 
the fish swam to and fro, making the most wonderful movements. But at last he became quite still. After a while, a flash of lightning seemed to pass through him, and then the daylight approached, and a voice cried out, I declare, here is the tin soldier. The fish had been caught, taken to the market and sold to the cook, who took him into the kitchen and cut him open with a large knife. She picked up the soldier and held him by the waist between her finger and thumb and carried him into the room. They were all anxious to see this wonderful soldier who had traveled about inside a fish, but he was not at all proud. They placed him on the table, and how many curious things do happen in the world. There he was, in the very same room, from the window of which he had fallen. There were the same children, the same playthings, standing on the table, and the pretty castle with the elegant little dancer at the door. She still balanced herself on one leg and held up the other, so she was as firm as himself. It touched the tin soldier so much to see her that he almost wept tin tears, but he kept them back. He only looked at her, and they both remained silent. Presently, one of the little boys took up the tin soldier and threw him into the stove. He had no reason for doing so. Therefore, it must have been the fault of the black goblin who lived in the snuff-box. The flames lighted up the tin soldier. As he stood, the heat was very terrible. But whether it proceeded from the real fire, or from the fire of love, he could not tell. Then he could see that the bright colors were faded from his uniform. But whether they had been washed off during his journey, or from the effects of his sorrow, no one could say. He looked at the little lady, and she looked at him. He felt himself melting away, but he still remained firm, with his gun on his shoulder. Suddenly the door of the room flew open, and the draught of air caught up the little dancer. She fluttered like a sylph right into the stove by the side of the tin soldier, and was instantly in flames. It was gone. The tin soldier melted down into a lump, and the next morning, when the maidservant took out the ashes out of the stove, she found him in the shape of a little tin heart. But of the little dancer nothing remained but the tinsel rose, which was burnt black as a cinder. The End What we won't do for love. We'll try anything, and we won't give up. If you've got love on your mind and you've got it, you've got your mind set on you, you might want to try looking for love in all the right places, like Match.com. Put in all of your details and they'll do their darndest 
to try and find a mate for you. Enter BVJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing, for this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that when it comes to love, iTunes loves reviews. It helps to spread the word about our little program and to help others to get to sleep. Tell them about the website, bedtimewithbvj.com. You can also send me stories to read. Point them to the website, bedtimewithbvj.com. You can send me stories to read. You can email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>